even though you're suffering, even though you've lost your children, even though you've lost everything, even though you're in pain, you talk like you're a big bag of weight. What a great friend. Now, in English, that means, you know, when you talk, when you're, when you're long-winded, it means to speak at great length with little to say. That's pretty much what he's saying to him. Job, you, you've done all this talking, and you've really said nothing. And then he questions him. Does God subvert or pervert judgment and justice? And so those two words mean the exact same thing. It means to twist or to bend or to make crooked. And Bildad goes in a different direction now than Eliphaz did with his accusations. He's saying, Eliphaz blamed Job for this, right? Eliphaz pretty much said, this is your fault, Job, that your children are dead. It's your sin that's brought this. And, and Bildad goes right for jugular and says, no, no. It wasn't your sin, Job. Your sons must have sinned to cause this to happen. It had to be sin in their lives for this tragedy to have befallen them. And, and I don't know whether Bildad's trying to bring some kind of perverted sense of comfort to Job by saying that, by kind of taking the blame off of Job and putting it on his sons, but that really doesn't bring comfort, does it? To transfer blame from one person to the next, they're still gone. It doesn't bring comfort at all. But his argument is, if God is just, if God is judge, then God's not going to pervert or subvert his judgment. If you sin, there's going to be consequences for it. They must have done something to deserve this punishment. And so one of the key questions for us this morning, and for the growth groups, by the way, in the back of your bulletin, you'll see that. If you join us on Tuesday nights for growth group or the youth group on Sunday mornings when we meet in the in the cafe, these will be one. This will be one of the questions: Does God punish us? Does God punish His children? And so, in order to answer that question, you have to look at it from two separate perspectives. Don't you? First, from the perspective of a child of God. And so, in order to look at it from that perspective, you have to ask yourself the question: How do I know I'm a child of God? Does anybody know the answer to that question? You guys. chapter 1, verse 12. If you ever have any doubt, John chapter 1, verse 12 tells us exactly who are the children of God. For as many as received him, to them he's given the right to be called child, children of God, whoever believes in his name. If you're a believer of Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are a child of God. So all believers are called children of God. God's children are not, are not punished. Not in the sense of the word of retribution. I mean, that's what punishment means, right? To inflict a penalty or sanction on someone as retribution for an offense, especially a transgression of a legal or moral code. So we can be punished for breaking law of the land, right? And we are. But can we be punished for sin against God? And the answer to that, the children of God, is no, because Jesus took our sin upon the cross. Jesus paid the penalty for Sin. Jesus took the punishment for us. He took the wrath of God upon himself, and he took our sin upon himself. He paid the price for us. He suffered that wrath. He suffered that punishment on the 
for our sin on the cross where we could be washed clean of that, where we could be forgiven of that. So God doesn't punish us as a retribution for our sin. He what? What does God do with his children? Discipline. Chastise. Absolutely. The author of Hebrews says that if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he, our Father in heaven, for our prophet, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 8. So because our Father in heaven loves us, he corrects us. Any of you young guys here ever feel loved when your father's correcting you? Because it's seen that way, right, when you're being corrected, and especially if that correction involves laying on of hands. <laughs> it's not always fun, but it's for our own benefit to correct us. It's to help us to grow. It's to, be, it's to build character in us. And our Heavenly Father disciplines us when we get off track, when we go against His Word, when we're living a life contrary to that Word, contrary to, to His commandments. He corrects us to get us back on track, if you will. And then second, there's the perspective of the non-believer, who's a creation of God, but not a child of God. Since they don't believe Jesus died for their sins, and they, and they have not called Jesus Lord and Savior, they cannot be called a child of God. And so they're going to leave this earth one day, and they're going to face the punishment for their sin. They're going to face the wrath of God. God's not going to chastise them and discipline them here, because God only disciplines his sons and daughters but they will face punishment for their sin at the great white throne judgment. And that is going to be what? What is the penalty for sin? Death. Eternal death, eternal separation from God. It's not a pretty subject. It's not meant to be. It's not something we sugarcoat or pass over because the Lord is very specific about this. And it, and it helps us, it presents that urgency for us to share the gospel message so that all become children of God. Amen? Look at verses 8. see God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now we would awake for you and prosper you your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet latter end, your latter end would increase abundantly. So he's, Bill Dad's now telling Job, if you seek God, if you turn to him, which is never a bad thing. If you turn to God, and if you're pure and upright, then God will bless you. God will cause you to prosper. And ultimately, you'll be blessed more at the end than you were in the beginning. Now, has anyone ever read the end of Job? Is that true? It's absolutely true in Job's case. Not always true for us, but it's true in Job's case. <laughs> but man believes even to this day, that we can do something to earn our righteousness. 
that I can just be good enough, that I can be upright enough, that if I just seek God in my own way, in my own terms, I can go to heaven. But God says, all who receive my Son as Lord and Savior, those are the ones who will go to heaven. Those are the ones who will not perish. God says that while we're still sinners, meaning we don't need to clean ourselves up. But that's the way of the world. I have to lose 50 pounds to go to the gym. I have to clean my house before the cleaning service starts. That's just the way we are. People think they have to get all cleaned up to come to Christ, and that's not the truth. The truth is we come to Christ any way. He takes us any way we come to him. He loves us, as the old saying goes, too much to leave us that way. So we don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to be pure because we're not pure. And we're not righteous. The Bible tells us we're none righteous, not one. And those who think we're righteous are righteous creatures like what? Filthy rags. Christ died for our sin. He shed his blood so that we could be cleansed. We're covered by his righteousness. Paul said to the Corinthian church, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So we can do absolutely nothing to obtain righteousness. Our righteousness is to us through Jesus Christ. Remember, Job had already been declared righteous by God, wasn't he? Way back in chapter 1. But Job and his friends have no idea that that conversation occurred between God and Satan in heaven. So Bildad's telling Job, if you're only good enough, if you're only righteous, if you're only pure in heart, God's just going to bless you. And that's absolutely not we're blessed by having the guarantee of heaven, but that only comes to us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not anything we can do. Verses 8-10. For inquire, please, of the former age, and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday in knowing nothing, because our days on earth are a shadow. They will not teach you tell you and utter words from their heart. Can the papyrus well, let's stop there. So he now tells Job, seek ancient wisdom. Seek the wisdom of our fathers. The counsel of our ancestors. And perhaps he's talking about him and his friends. Because they're all older than Job. We'll learn that in chapter 15. They're all older than him. Eliphaz would have been the oldest because he spoke first. And so now Bildad would have been second oldest because he speaks next. But what he's saying is if, if you don't believe us, if you don't believe our wise, wonderful counsel that we've given you so far, then perhaps you should seek the counsel of our ancestors. Look back on what they did. Look back on how they lived and what they thought. Because what he's looking to get is for Job to understand what they've been telling him all along, that the wicked what? suffer, and the righteous prosper. That's their whole theology. And so Job, if he did look back on his ancestors, they would be some pretty ancient people. I believe this book is written pre-flood. And I believe this book is written before Abraham, before Moses, before Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. And the reason I believe that is because all three of Job's friends, all four as we meet the other one later on, Elihu, all come from different regions, don't they? They all speak the same language. What happened at the Tower of 
Genesis 1-1 tells us the whole earth had one language and one speech. So what happened at the Tower of Babel? God confused all languages. They all spoke different languages after that. So this happened before the Tower of Babel sometime. Therefore, the ancient wisdom of the day would be Adam, Enoch, even Noah. All the, all the patriarchs we read about in Genesis 4 and 5 would be who, where this ancient wisdom would come from. And so the question Job would ask, do the wicked suffer? And do the righteous prosper? It's back to proper theology. And you don't have to go too far back in history, at least Job didn't, to get the answer to that question. Abel did the right thing in the eyes of the Lord, didn't he? He was righteous. What happened to him? So right from the very beginning, God shows us that good things do happen sometimes, bad things rather happen sometimes to good people. So that theology would just blow right out of the water if he would just simply seek the wisdom of the ancients. Look at verses 11 through 18 in chapter 8. Can the papyrus grow up without a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water? While it is yet green and not cut down, it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish, whose confidence shall be cut off, and whose trust is as a spider's web. He leans on the house, but it does not stand. He holds it fast, but it does not endure. He grows green in the sun, and his branches spread out in his garden. His roots wrap around the, the rock heap, and look for a place in the stones. He is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have not seen you. So that is really a lot of very poetic words to describe what we call cause and effect. He uses words here that say, to prove you have sin in your life, that would be the cause, right? The sin would be the cause. And that you're punished, that would be the effect. And so he's using these very poetic words to demonstrate that theology. And he makes it does make this point very poetically, doesn't it? There's some beautiful language in the book of Job. Papyrus needs a wet marsh environment to grow. And that's pretty much been saying, and we know that to be true. So can the marsh stay wet without water? The papyrus without the marsh and the marsh without the water will wither and die. That's the effect. The same thing happens for all those who forget God. Forgetting God is the cause, withering and dying, spiritually dying, the effect. And he goes on to say, he goes on to compare the godless to putting your trust in the spider's web. It looks strong on the outside, looks beautiful, looks intricate, right, on the outside, but if you put your hand against it, it'll just crumble in your hand. Put any pressure at all on it, even though it looks intricate, right, you know, like it could stand, withstand anything, if you put your hand against it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to just disintegrate and fall. And he compares a trust to clinging into your clinging onto your house for security. He compares that to material things that don't last. And finally, he compares the trust to a plant that, that never really takes root. And when it's uprooted, it just is destroyed. It, it ceases to exist. In other words, you can put your trust, you can't put your trust rather, in the integrity of a spider's web or in any earthly. It's a reminder for us that when we place our trust in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, it will fall apart whenever there's any pressure applied. Marriages fall apart. 
Relationships fall apart. Work situations fall apart. Our health can fall apart. Our material possessions can fall apart. The only thing that we can count on being there for all eternity, the only thing that we can truly put our trust in is Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so when we trust in him, we will, we will have security, and we will never be left. Verses 19 through 24. Behold, this is the joy of his bread, and out of the earth others will grow. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. And those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. Turn to God again, Lord God tells David, and you will have laughter. You will have joy in your heart. And when you take a look, when you really dig into the advice he's given in here, the, the heart behind it, Bildad, Bildad is suggesting that Job has drawn away from God. That's why he's in this situation that he's in. That's why he's so depressed. That's why he's lost his joy. He's drawn away from God. And, and really what he's saying, if you really look hard at it, he said, you're joy, you joined the rank of the godless. You've forgotten who your God is. He pointed out how the godless have no foundation in this earth. They have nothing to cling to. They have nothing to put trust in. Nothing that will give them security. It's like leaning on your house, on your, on banking on your, trusting in your material possessions. It's like leaning on a spider's web. It's not going to last. The theology of these friends is that there's only two types of people in the world. Those who are blameless, which by the way, doesn't God say that about Job back in chapter 1? And those who are wicked. And the way that they're distinguished between the two is that God blesses one and destroys the other. That's their whole theology. That, but that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us just the opposite, that it rains on the just and the unjust. That the wicked and the blameless alike prosper. That the wicked and the blameless alike suffer. What distinguishes them in the end like the goats and the sheep being separated, or the hares and the wheat. God receives the righteous, those covered with the righteousness of Christ in the presence of heaven. And he casts the wicked, the Bible tells us, into the outer darkness, where the weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the only distinction that is the end. So I guess that theology in some respect does apply, but only at the end of life. In this life, both the wicked and the blameless experience the same Things. They experience joy and they experience suffering. What distinguishes that in this life is, isn't that one's prosper and the other one destroyed. Rather than the righteous, those covered by the righteousness of Christ, they have hope. They have peace. They have joy in this life. Even in the midst of the suffering. Because they place their hope and their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. That hope, that peace, that joy isn't temporary, it's not fleeting, it's eternal. The wicked, however, have placed their hope and faith and trust in spider webs. Houses that aren't secure, jobs that aren't secure, relationships that aren't <clears throat> meant to last for all eternity. Not here on this earth, anyway. And they may have hope, they may have joy, they may have peace temporarily for a season, but it's not meant to last for all eternity, but God does. That's quite a Chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. And Job answered and said, Truly I know it is so. But how can a man be righteous before God? If one wished to contend with him, 
He could not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. So Job is basically now wanting to take God to court. Job is serving a subpoena to God. That word contend is a legal term. And Job is saying, who can take God to court? Job's innocent. Job wants God to know he's innocent. Job wants somehow, some way to prove to God that he's innocent. But he's not sure how anyone can stand before Almighty God and prove anything. And Job rightly says, if God were to ask me a thousand questions, I couldn't even get one of them right. Which is true because later on, as we go through the book, when we get to the section where Job and, and God are, are having a dialogue, God asks him a series of questions. And Job cannot answer even one of them. And I would venture to say that any of us were put in that place and couldn't answer even one of those questions that God asked him. Job understands to his credit that God is so holy that man cannot stand before him and defend himself. Listen, we know that to be true, don't we? That only those clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ can stand before God and be raised. Only those clothed in his righteousness, there will be no condemnation. So Job's question, who can be declared innocent before God, can only for us, as believers, only be answered one way. Those who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ are declared innocent before God, and only those. Look at verses 5 through 10. He removes the mountains, and we do not know. And he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place, and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun, and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens. He treads on the waves of the sea. He made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south. He does great things finding out. So now Job is he's going to court. He wants to take God to court. But then he, rem he remembers who the judge is. He remembers who the judge is. He's leading over, he's reading over the judge's resume. And, and he's, he's shaking. He's, he's, he's trembling because this is Almighty God. And he's thinking to himself, have I not considered the power of Almighty God? Can he not make the earth shake? Can he not topple mountains? And he's referring, of course, to earthquakes and volcanoes. If God were to say to the sun, do not rise, the sun would not rise. He created the sun. He created the stars. He created the moon. He created the constellations like the bear and Orion and Pleiades. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that God said, let there be the lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons for the days and years. Genesis 1.14. So Job is describing the immense power and ability of God to give us a picture of who he would be standing in front of if he did take God to court. I don't know, I'd be pretty nervous, wouldn't you? You'd rather stand before God? Who can stand before the one who created the heavens, who made the stars, who hung the stars in the sky for his own purpose? Think about that for a minute. God created one star to, sh to show where his son was born very special star, a star to announce the birth of his son. He uses the lights and the stars in the skies to declare the signs and seasons. He's going to use those same stars and lights to declare the return of his son one day. Now, I'm not going to list all the verses in Revelation chapter 6, but I'm just going to give you a kind of a synopsis of what goes on. The sun becomes black like sackcloth. The moon becomes as blood. 
stars of heaven falling to the earth, the heaven being rolled up as a scroll, that's what's going to declare the return of the sun. He created the stars. He created them for a purpose. They benefit us. They give us light. But they're his creation. Job's talking about the heavens being rolled out. We've only recently discovered the immensity of the heavens. It's no longer a universe. It's a multiverse. And they keep discovering more and more and more universes. He's saying if God instructed them not to shine, they would cease spreading life. And we see that very thing in Revelation chapter 8 when the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine and likewise the night. Later on in Revelation we read, and the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it the glory of God illuminated the land into light. God can turn the lights off anytime that you want. And listen, no one can turn them back on to you. We got a guy at work who runs around all the time turning off the lights. He doesn't pay the electric bill, but he feels he has to go around turning off all the lights everywhere. And then I go around behind him and turn them all back on. When God turns the lights off, no one can turn them back on. And that's just a glimpse. That's just a small glimpse into the power of Almighty God. And this is who Job is fearful of. This is who Job is fearful of standing before to defend himself, to prove that he's innocent. And it's wise. It's to be fearful of God. Doesn't the Bible tell us that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God? And then he goes on to say that God has done great things. Too marvelous to understand When you stop to just even consider our own bodies, the way our own bodies are designed, we realize that the work of his hand is truly presented to us in creation, especially in the creation of us. I'm just going to give you some interesting facts about our bodies this morning. The average human brain has about 100 billion nerve cells. No matter how many of them that you killed in the 60s, you had about 100 billion to start, so I think you're good. Nerve impulses to and from the brain travel as fast as 170 miles per hour. Your stomach needs to produce a new layer of mucus every two weeks or it would digest itself. It takes the interaction of 72 different muscles to produce human speech. The human thigh bone is stronger than concrete. Did you know, I didn't know this. Did you know babies were born without kneecaps? They don't appear until the child reaches no idea. No one all over the kitchen if nobody's got any cat. <laughs> Your skulls are made of 29 different bones. And for the nurses here this morning, you know every name of those bones. The average surface of the human intestine is 656 square feet. The surface of the human skin is 6.5 square feet. And there's 45 million nerves in the skin of a human being. Average human heart will be 2.5 billion times in its lifetime and pump 48 million gallons of blood. Isn't that incredible? Each square inch of human skin contains 20 feet of blood vessels. And human blood travels 60,000 miles per day on its journey through the body. So the more we learn about our human bodies, the more we can agree with King David who said, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
many marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Psalm 139, 14. God is truly amazing. And this is who Job is realizing that he will stand before. Look at verses 11 through 13 of chapter 9. And if he goes by me, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, no one can hinder him. Who can say to him, what are you doing? God will not withdraw his anger. The allies of the proud lie prostrate beneath him. If God moves past me, I cannot see him, Job said. God's been moving behind the scenes from day one, hasn't he? From the creation, from the dawn of creation, he's been moving behind the scenes. We can't see him. We can't see him, but we know that he's there, that he's working. And what he's doing now, you know, people tell me all the time, you know, people ask, what's going on in our, in our world? What's going on around us? Why is this? Why is this happening? Why are we going through this? And the answer is, God is moving behind the scenes, directing us to that one day when his son comes to rule and reign on this earth. Everything that happens, happens for a reason. Everything that happens moves us closer to that day. Amen? And so no one can say to God, where are you going or what are you doing? Because as the prophet Isaiah reminds us, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways, my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. He's the great I am. He's God. And that's all we really need to know. No one can stop him. No one control, can control him. Is God Almighty, and He has sovereignty over all. Look at verses 14 through 16. How then can I answer Him and choose my words to reason with Him? For though I were righteous, I could not answer Him. I would beg mercy of my judge. If I called and He answered me, I would not believe that He was listening to my voice. Job laments, the heart behind that is that he feels God is distant, that he's distant, that he's unloving, that he's unfeeling, that he's uncaring. And Job's really gone through it, hasn't he? It's kind of easy for us to understand how you feel that way. Have you ever felt that way? Ever felt sometimes that God is just distant, that he's not there, he's not listening, he doesn't care, that he's turned his back on us? I think we've all felt that at one time in all in our lives. And in a few moments, I'm going to share some scripture with you that, that just shows that that's not true, that he's always there with us. But first, let me ask you, if you raise children, when they reach this certain age, if you leave them alone, I think we've all done that, right? I remember leaving the house one day, and Nick's mom, I left the house earlier, and Nick's mom left a little while later. She assumed that Nick was with me, and I assumed that she had taken Nick with her. Well, thank God she wasn't gone that long because when she got home, guess who was there? Nick. Nick's my son. And um, it was a little scary because I think he was only about seven or eight at the time. It was a little scary. He had a ball, but it was a little scary for the parents. But it was funny because it was at the time when Home Alone was out in the theater. <laughs> so he was really Home Alone. Much later in life, when we hit high school, I did leave him alone one time. I went to a conference. I left the conference and I went home early. And as I pulled into the driveway, Nick, of course, wasn't expecting me home that early. And that kind of put a damper on the party he was having in my house. And so as I'm pulling in, all I saw was teenagers running out. 
We leave our kids home as a test to see what they'll do, see if they can handle it, to see, to see if we can trust them. It helps them to grow and help build character and integrity in them. And I believe God does the same thing with his children. Sometimes when we feel like we're alone, sometimes God is, is testing us. He's, he's showing us. He wants us to see that we can be trusted. He wants us to know that our faith in him is all that we need. That he doesn't always have to be there. He doesn't always have to, to be this feeling that God's right next to us, that we can continue on, continue to do what he's called us to do without knowing he's there, but also knowing in the back of our mind that he is always there. And he does have to help us, help draw us actually closer to him, never to drive us away from him, you see, I don't believe sin in our life drives God away from us. I believe it works the other way around. I believe the sin in our life drives us away from God. Because positionally, we're covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when God looks at us, does he see a sinner? He sees his son. He sees his son of the, the blood of his son covering us. He sees this righteousness, the robe of righteousness that was to us by his son. That's what he sees. So positionally, God sees us as perfectly covered by the blood of his son. But it's our sin, our sin, that drives us away from him. We avoid him. We hide from him. Just as Adam and Eve did in the garden. We do the same thing. You know, I always use that. You've heard me use this illustration many times. Say, us, we and God are connected by a communication cable. And then when we sin, God reaches down and snips the cable. And then when we confess our sin and we're, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and God reaches down and connects the cable. The only problem with that illustration I've realized, God doesn't cut the cable. We cut the cable. We cut the cable. God is always faithful when we confess our sins. He's always faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we attach that cable. We're the ones that are constantly cutting that cable. We're the ones that are constantly running from him. The great thing about that is every time we do that, when God makes that cable, slices that cable, does anybody realize what happens when you slice the cable over and over and over and over and over again? It gets what? So we draw closer and closer and closer to him through all this time. And all the time we think we're drawing further away from him. But God is with us all. Job's a good guy, but he wasn't sinning. And he felt distance from God, not because God had turned his back on him, because Job's relationship wasn't really where it should have been with God. The Bible tells us that the Lord is near those who have a broken heart. Psalm 34, 18. Psalm 56, 8 says, You number my wanderings and put my tears into your bottle. Are, not, are they not in your book? Psalm 145.18 says, The Lord is near all who call upon him, and all who call upon him in truth. So if you feel God's distant from you, it's not that he's turned his back on you, it's that you need to examine what's really going on in your life. He hasn't drifted away from you, you've drifted away from him. So call upon him, draw near to him, and then what happens to God? He will draw near to you. Look at verse 17. For he crushes me with tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to catch my breath. He fills me with bitterness. 
matter of strength, indeed he is strong. And if of justice, who will appoint my day in court? Though I were righteous, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I were blameless, I would prove it would prove it would prove me perverse. So Job believed that God's using his power, using his strength, all the strength, all the power, all the might that we just thought about against him. That God's unleashing heaven against him. In reality, all hell is released against him, not heaven. And it can feel that way sometimes, doesn't it? We feel that way even in our lives, that God is against us. And when the bills pile up, when the car gets wrecked, when the kids are sick, when you, when you get laid off, and all that happens in the same week, it can feel like God's against us. What did I do, Lord? We looked to heaven. We, what did I do to deserve this? We've all been there. Start to feel that God is against us for some reason because things in our life aren't going the way we think they should go. Job felt that way. But is that true? Is God against us? Well, the first thing we need to do is, is separate our feelings from reality. Because our friends, our family, our co-workers let us down. They can even turn against us sometimes. It's all part of this fallen world that we live in. Even the bills piling up, even the car getting wrecked, even the kids getting sick, getting laid off from our job, it's all part of this fallen world that we live in. The reality of all of that is that in this life, you will have trouble. In this life, you will have trials. In this life, you will have tribulation. But there's a greater reality to all of that for the children of God. We look at God, and we know that God is always with us. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. God will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never turn his back on us. He's always with us, never against us. Even if it, even when the bills are piling up, even when everyone else is against us, God is not. In fact, another truth in Scripture tells us that. What then shall we say these, to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8, 31. That is one of the most powerful verses in Scripture, isn't it? Everything, however, can be against us. The car, the job, our health, our finances, our friends, our family can be against us, can't they? But it really doesn't matter, does it? Because God is for us. God is always for us. God is always with us. And with him on our side, there is nothing and there is no storm that we cannot weather. Look at verse 21. I am blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It is all one thing. Therefore I say, he destroys the blameless and the wicked. Go gets it. And the scourge slays suddenly. He laughs at the plight of the innocent. The earth is given into the hands of the wicked. He covers the faces of his judges. If it is not he, who could it be? It's almost hard to hear Job say that. Job feels like the wicked of the day. Like the judges are blind to what's going on around them. Of course, if Job lived in present-day America, this would be absolutely true. It seems like the wicked are in control now, doesn't it? And the judges are blind. But worse yet, Job makes the comment that God pleasure in the death of the innocent, in the suffering of the innocent. Now, 
That's not true. But when you believe, as they believe, that the innocent should never suffer, that they should get a pass on all bad things that happen to other people, and when you see the innocent and the wicked come to the same end, then it would be easy to think that God laughs at the death of the innocent. But what they don't know, they don't know God's heart. Job will figure that out later on, but for right now, he doesn't know God's heart. God says, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and what? Live. God's heart is, is that the wicked, the sinner, Repent and turn to him and live for all eternity. God wants no one to die in their sin. He wants no one to perish. So he made a way. He made a way for that to happen. He sent his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. And for all of us who are covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, by the blood of the Lamb, we know this to be true. The Lord says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God does, in a sense, rejoice in the death of the innocent because he knows that those who are innocent, those who are covered by the blood of the Lamb, are going to be with him forever in heaven. But the reason that Job and all the people of his day struggled with this is because they saw a difference between good and bad. They felt that the innocent were good and the bad were wicked. It was pretty simple for them. It's pretty simple theology. But God sees all those who are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ as guilty sinners deserving of death. Whether the world sees you as innocent or not, unless you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are what? Guilty. There is no righteousness. There's only guilty if you're not covered by the blood of Christ. And the only way to become to be covered by the blood of Christ is to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. These are verses 25 to 33. Now my days are swifter than a runner. They flee away and no one they see no good. They pass like swift ships, like an eagle swooping on its prey. If I say I will forget my complaint, I will put off my sad face and wear a smile. I am afraid of all my suffering. I know that you will not hold me innocent. If I am condemned, why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and cleanse my hands with soap, yet you will plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will me. For he is not a man as I am, so that I may answer him, and that we should go to the court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me. Do not let the dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak and not hear him, but it is not so with me. So even Job says, even if I purify myself with snow water, meaning the, the glacier like water, that some of you probably bottled that today, that runs down from the snow-covered mountains, it's clear and pure and crisp. Even if I bathed myself in that, even if I was as pure as that, it wouldn't make a difference to God because it simply plunged me back into the pit again. And Job's entire argument here is that God doesn't know him. Because if he did know him, he must not care about him. God doesn't know that Job's innocent. If God knew that Job was innocent, and still treated him like this, then God must not love him. God must not care about him. Job, in his eyes, is innocent. He's undeserving of the suffering of pain. And he wants to come before God in open court and prove his innocence to God. He wants to put God 
and looking for him. He wants to put God on the witness stand so God can be questioned, so that Job can make his case before God of his innocence. So Job longs for a mediator, someone who's going to stand before him and God and make an argument for Job's innocence. Does that sound familiar to you from anybody? There is now a mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, who does exactly that. He stands before God on a regular basis as Satan sits there and tries to condemn us and accuse us day and night. Jesus sticks up for us. He mediates for us. Job didn't know that. Job didn't have that. We do. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Show me why you contend with me. Does it seem good to you that you should oppress? That you should despise the work of your hands? And smile on the counsel of the wicked? Do you have eyes of flesh or do you see as man sees? Are your days like the days of a mortal man? Are your years like the days of a mighty man? that you should seek for my iniquity and search out my sin, although you know that I am not wicked and there is no one who can deliver from your hand. Job wants now to open up. He wants to, to share his complaint. I don't know what he's been doing over the last couple of chapters, but now all of a sudden he wants to open up. He says, don't condemn me, God. And if you are condemning me, show me what the charges are. Show me why you're condemning me. You know, we say today you're innocent before, until proven guilty, right? That there has to be a presumption of innocence before you're proven guilty. Job felt that he was declared guilty without ever being reported in trial, without ever being, without there ever being a presumption of innocence. He was just proven guilty. And Job's asking God, well, actually he's complaining, he's lamenting, I'm the work of your hands, Lord. You've created me. Why are you now destroying me? Do you see as man sees? Can't you see what's going on here? He's saying to God, I'm innocent, and yet you're allowing me to suffer like this. This isn't right, God. That's what he's saying. This isn't right, God. You've got this all wrong. You must be looking at this from man's perspective. Verse 8 of chapter 10 reads, Your hands have made me and fashioned me intricate unity, yet you would destroy me? Remember, I pray that you have made me like clay, and you will turn me into dustiness. Did you not pour me out like milk, and curl me like cheese, clothe me with skin and flesh, and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and favor, and your care has preserved my spirit. And Job again is reminding God that God made him with his own hand. That God had formed him from the dust of the ground and formed him into the person that he is today. Like a potter who molds a lump of clay, he takes a useless lump of clay and molds it into a pot. But now, God, you're taking this creation of yours, this, this beautiful creation that you molded, and destroying it. But if God's the potter, doesn't the potter have the right to do with this creation as he so wishes? Job's not questioning the right of God to do that. But what he's asking God is, why would you do that? Why would you destroy something that you created? That's a question 
verse 13. And these things you have hidden in your heart. I know that this was with you. If I sin, then you mark me. You will not acquit me of my iniquity. If I am wicked, woe to me. Even if I am righteous, I cannot lift my head. I am full of disgrace. See my misery. If my head, if my head is exalted, you hunt me like a fierce lion, and again you show yourself awesome against me. You renew your, your witness against me and increase your indignation toward me. Changes in war are ever with me. God did say back in chapter 1 that Job was an upright guy, right? He did say that Job did the right thing when everybody else around him was doing the wrong thing. But God never said that Job was sinner. And Job believes that he's pure, that he's innocent. Doesn't make him sinner. Maybe in his eyes he thought he was sinless. Maybe that's part of the problem. So Job's kind of asking, does God grade on a curve? Does God judge like this? He looks at Job and says, Job has isn't as much of a sinner as this guy over here, so so I'm gonna let Job go and I'm really gonna condemn the other guy. Is that how God grades? Does God look at one sin greater than the other? Or does God look at sin as sin? God looks at the sin of homosexuality the same as he looks at the sin of, of, of sex outside of marriage. It's sin. It's all sin. Not one sin is greater than the other. God's a holy and righteous judge. And so you have to understand that if you're going to enter a courtroom with him, if you're going to plead that you're innocent, you have to know what that word innocent means to God. It means something different than it means to us. Innocent in the eyes of God means pure. It means perfect. It means perfectly sinless. Who set that bar? Jesus. Jesus set the bar. Jesus was the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God. When he died and he took our sin upon him and was washed away, he ascended to heaven, right? So what God is saying is the way to obtain heaven, the way to come to heaven is to be like Jesus, to be perfect, sinless, spotless. That's a little hard for us to do, isn't it? There's only one way for that to happen. Us to have his righteousness imputed to us. And thank God that's exactly what he does for us. The only ones who can meet that bar that he set is the ones covered by the spotless, perfect blood of the Lamb. If you're not covered by his blood, you can walk around all day long holding up your head, declaring yourself to be righteous, declaring yourself to be not as, maybe I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that guy over there. But in the end, yourself. Proclaimed righteousness can only lead to one thing, death. King Solomon wrote, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death, Proverbs 14, 12. This is one of those ways. Man sees himself as basically good. Man sees himself as innocent. Man sees himself as not as bad as the guy next door. But the Bible tells us there's none righteous, not one. There are none that are innocent. So without Jesus Christ, Man is only innocent in his own eyes. In the eyes of God, man is guilty. Verse 18 says, Why then have you brought me out of the womb? Oh, that I had perished and no eye had seen me? I would have been as though I had not, it would have been as if I had not been. I would have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease, leave me alone that I may take a little comfort before I go to the place from which I shall not return, the land of the darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as dark.
shadow of death without any order where even the light is like darkness. That's a pretty dark place. And Job doesn't want to kill himself here. Job doesn't talk about suicide, but he keeps making these statements that he wishes he was never born. And anyone who's ever dealt with this area knows that that's a red flag. That's a red flag for someone considering suicide. Because if you're wishing you were never born, you have the ability to correct that situation, don't you? Maybe the reason he doesn't end his life is because he believes his life is passing by so quickly that it's not going to last much longer anyway. And he wants God to just leave him alone. Just leave me alone, God, in these last final days of my life. Just leave me to my misery. Leave me alone. Honestly, Job doesn't know what he wants, though. Because one minute he wants God to answer him for the reason he's suffering, and the next minute he tells God to leave him alone. Sound like us? He wants some time for himself before he goes to the land of darkness, the shadow of death, land of darkness, darkness of shadow. And that's an interesting glimpse into what the ancients thought about death. It was a place of no return, a place of utter darkness. Death was a place to be dreaded. No one had ever gone there and returned. And you know something? Had Jesus not gone there and returned, it would be a place of utter darkness and dread for us. But we know, because Jesus went ahead of us to prepare a place for us, that there is life after death. And Job's going to come to that realization at one point in this book as well. That Jesus has gone ahead of us so that we can follow him, not to a place of darkness, but to a place of everlasting life. Where there's no more, no more sickness, no more death, no more sorrow, no more tears. What an amazing place that is. Oh, death, the Bible tells us, where is your sting? A place that, by the way, once you go there, you know, we, we mourn, and then I sadly went to a funeral of another 30 something year old who lost her life recently. You know, I made the comment that when I was that age, we would go to the funerals of our aunts and our uncles and, and the older generation, and it seems that I've gone, this generation has gone to more funerals for their generation recently than ever before. What a shame. That hopelessness that exists in this world, that things will never get any better. But it's not a place of darkness. It's a place of great light. And it's a place, by the way, for those who have gone before us. They're not sitting in heaven wishing they were back here with us. I wish we were there with that. It's a place that no one wants to return to. It's a place that Paul says is so amazing, so beautiful, that words can't even describe it. You shouldn't be able to even speak about it. It's a place that we all want to be. It's a place free of the troubles of this world. But listen, you're not going there until the Lord says it's time to go there. Until then, you are to be about our Father's business. So the question at the beginning of the message was, who can take God before? Have you ever wanted to take God before? You think about that. Why do we go to court in the first place? Well, one, of course, is to determine guilt and innocence. The other is to get answers, right? To get answers. Have you ever wanted to ask God why something happened? Have you ever wanted to, to maybe put God on the stand and have him tell you specifically why a specific event happened in your life? No, I Those questions, who can take God before? 
can declare that with your feelings. Who can question God? You know, my grandson Oliver is three years old, and so he's at that age where everything that you say to him is followed by the question. All parents know this question. What is why? 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 When you ask, we ask why, we're asking for the reason or purpose of what you just said or what you just did, right? So when Oliver can ask me why all day long, and he does, why? Because I know that this helps him grow. It helps him gain knowledge. It helps him grow, right? Now, sometimes I, I indulge him and I tell him why. 20, 30 times as well. Same question. Other times I just ignore him because he's asked me now 20 times the same question, the same answer, the same why, the same thing. God in the Bible has identified us as a relationship, the relationship that we have with him, sons and daughters, and he's the father, right? So we can go, just like we go to our earthly dad and ask him why. It's okay to ask God why. And sometimes, sometimes in this life, he'll give us the reason. And sometimes he'll ignore us, knowing that, not because he's cruel, but he knows that we're not ready for that. Sometimes we want the answer to why, and in reality, we're not really ready to hear that. But there's a much better question to ask of the And those are how and what. How can I grow? What can I learn from? Those are much better questions than that. You see, a child of man grows by asking the question why. But a child of God grows by asking the questions how and what. In closing, I'm going to read you an excerpt from an army manual. It reads, ten pegs are to be aluminum, nine inches in length. They must be painted orange. Bright color provides an easy means of locating the peg under various light and climatic conditions during field use. When bright orange pegs are used, they must be, now pay attention, driven into the ground completely out of sight. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense, does it? Steve's over here thinking, ah, the army, that's why I went in the Navy. <laughs> Anybody who reads this, it has to leave them scratching their head. Why? Why would you make us paint all these pegs bright orange and we're only going to drive them into the ground and nobody can see them? When we ask God why, we're saying to God, why? Why, God? It doesn't make any sense what you're doing. Think about that for a minute. And it doesn't make any sense to us because it doesn't fit into our perfect plan for our life. It doesn't fit into the plan that we have in our minds. That old saying, you want to make God laugh? Pick a plan. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that God never consults us, never asks us to email him a copy of our plan? Have you ever noticed that? Because he knows the beginning from the end. Do you know the beginning from the end? Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? Do you know what's going to happen next week, next year? He does. He knows how this is all going to turn out. So why would he ever want to consult our temporary plans? Even if it's a five-year plan. So that gives us a couple options. We could continue to force our plan upon God. We could continue to send him emails. We continue to write out the plan. We continue to try and strive and struggle to make him see it our way. We can continue to do that. And for 
Most of us were hard-headed enough to keep on doing it. Let me know how that works out for you, because so far it hasn't worked out very well for me. Or second, we could put our trust in Him and let Him determine the outcome. Even though it may not make sense to us now, it'll at least give us peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding, knowing that it's in His hand, and it, there's nothing that we can do about it, because we don't have control over it. Do you want to take God to court, or do you want to rest in the knowledge? I think the better way, one that the way that brings us the most peace, the way that brings us the most growth, is instead of asking God why, asking Him how, asking Him what. How can I grow from this? What can I learn from this? If you're going to ask God why, ask Him why from this perspective. Why am I striving this way, God? You know the beginning from the end. Why don't I ask you, God, how can I grow through this? How, what can I learn from this? Instead of asking you why to do this. So if you want to ask God why, ask God why we are so stiff-necked and hard-headed. Ask him why to that. But if you're going to ask God how you learn, how you grow, ask him what and how. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your work. We thank you for that. You need to come to home, we can glean from your word, that we can see, even in the book of Job, we see Jesus. We see your plan for eternal salvation. That from every book, from Genesis to Revelation, there's one central theme the salvation of mankind through the Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for our brother Job, that we learned so much through him. We ask you to move.